Hello, and welcome to Full Contact Nerd Interviews, where I talk with writers and other creative people about their work and how and why they create fantastic and mysterious places for us to explore. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Hadas Elber Avaram, author of Fairy Tales of London, British Urban Fantasy, 1840 to the Present, published by Bloomsbury Academic, February 11th, 2021. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So first, um, how did you start studying and end up writing a book on this subject? So I've always loved British fantasy. I mean, from a very young age, I, I grew up in Jerusalem, Israel. But both of my parents uh, were academics, and both of them were very cosmopolitan. So from a young age, I would, I mean, they would read books to me. I think some of my earliest memories are um, being read C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles and J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. And even when I was old enough to read on my own, it was part of a family ritual. My mother and I would take these long train rides and we would read the Harry Potter books together and just talk about how Harry was a, a total git and Hermione was infinitely better than him. <laughs> uh, so for me, it was just a huge part of my life. And, and then when I went on to study literature on the undergraduate level, um, I was very lucky to have a truly brilliant professor of narrative analysis named Lana Gomel. Mm. She's still a friend and a colleague of mine. And she shared my love of British fantasy, so she really nurtured it. And by the time I did my master's dissertation with her, I was already sort of well on this track. So I wrote my master's dissertation on Charles Dickens' influence on China Mabel. And um, luckily, it, this was in 2012, which was exactly the bicentenary of um, Dickens' birth. And as a result, I got a publication out of my master's thesis, which then sort of paved the way to um, securing a scholarship for a PhD in London at mm. University College London, where I wrote the PhD thesis that then became uh, this book. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. Um, it's So the book is about a subject I hadn't ever come across before or an analysis, which is um, rural British writers versus urban British writers. So... Um, can you talk a little more about how you how you developed that idea, how, why why that came to mind for you? So it's really amazing, isn't it? Because uh, what I was really struck by when I started studying the subject is just how much these writers knew each other and wrote about each other, mm -hmm. and how much you have these two, two traditions that are self consciously antagonistic. So if you think if you begin with say mid nineteenth century, you have Charles Dickens on the one hand and John Ruskin on the other. Mm -hmm. And John Ruskin really wrote sort of a rural fantasy. He wrote a Christmas book, which he wrote earlier than Dickens' Christmas Carol, but he only published after Christmas Carol. It's a short uh, Christmas book named King of the Golden River. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of the exact opposite of Christmas Carol in many ways. It's about this sort of sublime rural nature and how um, the, the protagonist, Gluck, survives the corrupting influences of the city and triumphs. Mm. It's, it's, and from the beginning, you get the sense Ruskin in 1870 wrote about Dickens, and he respected Dickens, but he really was heavily critical of him as well. So he wrote about how Dickens fosters in a thwarted habit of mind in the city, and 
what sort of a detrimental and pernicious influence Dickens has uh, by sort of worshipping industry and urban life. Mm. He calls it the thwarted art of fiction. And, um, and you get this throughout. So after Ruskin and Dickens, you get H.G. Wells, who wrote actually in quite disparagingly of Ruskin. He complained about the fact that socialism in England was taken up by this Ruskinian ideal of going back to rural life. And it goes on from there. J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis wrote sort of in a way that really fostered a, a vision of rural fantasy against urban fantasy, whereas George Orwell was quite disparaging of C.S. Lewis. And throughout, you get these writings of these two traditions of very famous authors who actually wrote about each other in a way that very consciously shows that they knew that they were fostering two opposing traditions. So it's not even a case of me sort of imposing these two opposing lines. They did it themselves. We just haven't noticed for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Were these authors also, did they grow up or live in the areas in which they, quote, represented in this argument? That's a really interesting question. So, I mean, definitely the, the main tradition that I look at, which is the urban fantasists, they all lived in London for most of their lives, mm -hmm. largely. I mean, with, with an asterisk, asterisk on Neil Gaiman, but generally speaking, yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, Dickens is, of course, the great writer of London. Wells lived in London for much of his life. George Orwell and Mervyn Peake. Um, I know less about the rural fantasy tradition because it's not my main tradition, mm. but it's very clear from the writings of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis that they, they deeply disliked London. I mean, you can definitely see an identification between London and Mordor mm. in uh, The Lord mm. of the Rings. C.S. Lewis in The Magician's Nephew writes about London as a beastly hole. Mm. Um, if you uh, get to the end of The Magician's Nephew, I, I don't know if you remember this, but um, the first king of Narnia is a former London cabbie. And yeah. when he meets Aslan, one of the first things he says is that if he had the opportunity to have his wife here, he would never want to return to London ever again. Huh. So the, the antagonism towards London is very clear. Huh. So is it is it based in politics or is it something different, you know, as far as um, something cultural? You know, where does this stem from? So, it, of course, it changes from author to author, but I think a lot of this had to do with the, with the fact that London was such a vastly and rapidly growing city. Mm -hmm. So, it grew faster in the 19th century by far than any other city in the world. Um, its population tripled. It's, it was sooty, it was dirty, it was polluted. It was very bad for, for the health of people living in the city. Mm -hmm. uh, the the uh, discrepancies between wealth and poverty were truly shocking. So there was a lot, there was a lot to be critical about London for. And it's not that the urban fantasists were necessarily less critical of London, but it was a matter of attitude. So for, for people like, like Tolkien or George MacDonald or say William Morris, it was about turning back the clock and sort of writing about an idealized rural fantasy world. Whereas for Dickens and for Wells, it was about making the city better. Mm. and about envisioning a better future in the city. So they were, all of these writers were responding to a difficult situation and to a situation where London was, was a, a, a tough place to live in. Mm. They were just responding to it from opposite sides of the debate. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess also with this growth of London, you also have a growth of sort of technology and learning and 
you know, it's also growing in very positive ways. Did that, did that, how did that find its way into the writings of these urban, urban authors? You know, what, you know, what, in what ways did they present London? You said both negative and positive, but, but tell me about that. That's an excellent question. I mean, I think you can really see that very strongly with H.G. Wells. Because mm-hmm. He was the one who really brought the genuine scientific training to this tradition. So for Wells, it was a godsend. I mean, Wells came from a really sort of low middle class family, and he was brilliant. And this was the moment where the fact that someone was brilliant could start to have some social mobility. So he got a scholarship to the Normal School of Science in South London. And he went there and he studied under Aldous Huxley and he learned about evolution. And he he, he became sort of this brilliant mind that, that was fostered through learning. And I think for all his criticism of London, he would not have been the author that he was if he could not have that, that level of training. So, I mean, the opportunities and the spectacles and the culture of London truly fed, I think, both into Wells and into Dickens' writing. Uh, but in terms of formal education, that would be Wells. And in terms of just sheer culture and, and, and theater and, and, and literary circles, that would be more Dickens. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which, um, which authors do you, or how many authors do you cover? And, and can you name some of them if, if not all, if there are too many? <laughs> Sure, absolutely. So the, the first chapter is about Charles Dickens, the second chapter is about H.G. Wells, mm-hmm. and then I branch out a bit. So the third chapter is about George Orwell and Mervyn Peake. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fourth chapter is mainly about Michael Moorcock and a little bit about M. John Harrison. Mm-hmm. This is the 1960s, 1970s New Worlds magazine, mm-hmm. uh, with a little bit of branching into the other writers of New Worlds, which was one of the main science fiction fantasy magazines of the time. Mm-hmm. And then on the final chapter, I sort of go into Neil Gaiman and China Mabel and branch out a little bit from there and talk slightly about Ben Aronovich, who's the most contemporary writer that I talk about mm-hmm. in that chapter. So considering the size of the book, um, and you know, you, you touch on sort of a limited number of authors, what, what do you go into with each? Do you basically trace their writings or, or other sort of uh, um, themes? So I think I think you've just hit the nail on its head because that that's that was my main the main thing that I grappled with about this book. I mean the wonderful thing about writing about London-based fantasy is the sheer richness and diversity. But the difficult thing is deciding which authors to include and what to say about them. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I really wanted to choose authors who very obviously influenced each other. So I didn't want this to be tenuous. I wanted this to be very visible and to really make a strong argument for a line of influence. So H.G. Wells explicitly said that Dickens influenced him greatly. All well wrote about Wells and Dickens. And so, and that's the way I go. So I really go, I look at all of these authors in the historical context as well as drawing a line between them. Mm-hmm. I look at who they were, what the situation in London was at the moment, how they molded their fantasies to historical pressures, but also how they drew on their predecessors and how they departed from them. So the first chapter is very much about Dickens' Christmas books, about the beginnings of London-based fantasy and what that involved. The Wells chapter is much more about turn-of-the-century London, about the ailing infrastructure of London, about the, the impact of Darwin's evolutionary theory, about deep space and deep time, 
the third chapter about George Orwell and Riven Peak is one of my favorites and one of the darkest ones. It's about trauma and post-war and blitzed London. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I get to sort of slightly more positive and more contemporary things. So the fourth chapter is about New World's magazine, mm-hmm. Michael Moorcock and John Harrison, and also what it was like. So um, the main focus of the fourth chapter, interestingly, is not necessarily these authors as it is a particular character. So I don't know if this is very well known in the U.S., but New World's magazine had this sort of flagship character named Jerry Cornelius, who's really weird. And one of the things about him is uh, it's not always a he, sometimes it's a she. Mm -hmm. And sometimes he's gay, sometimes he's transsexual, sometimes he's straight, sometimes he's white, sometimes he's black. But Mm. Jerry Cornelius is always a Londoner, and he was written by all of these different authors in New World's magazine. Mm. So that's what I talk about. So that's a bit different. Mm. That's my focus. Um, And then the final chapter is about what we have today, which I think is much more a fully fleshed alternative London. Mm-hmm. So rather than having fantasy erupt into the everyday city, you start to get things like Neverwhere, where the protagonist goes into an alternative London and has adventures there. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of um, China Mavel, it's sort of it's often uh, a mirror London. So he has this beautiful novella entitled The Tane, where one of the characters goes into Nud Null, which is London in reverse. Mm-hmm. So I talk about that and I compare that to previous London fantasies. And I talk about the advantages of that, but also some of the losses involved in in just having a different London to escape into. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Dr. Hadass Alber-Avaram, author of Fairy Tales of London. You can find more information about her work on her academic webpage. If you like this episode of Full Contact Nerd Interviews so far, please tap the like button and hit the subscribe button. If you want interviews with writers and creative people, or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So it seems, so thinking about the the more modern writers, or more specifically post-World War II, do they, did they have sort of the, the rural, did they have that, what might be termed the rural writers that they were sort of clashing with like the previous ones did? Because I see less of a rural Britain at that point than in the past. That's a really good question. I think it's, it's more about Tolkien's lasting influence by that point. Uh. Because, I mean, the Tolkien phenomenon in the 1960s was unprecedented. And I think Tolkien casts a long shadow to this day. Mm-hmm. New World Magazine, when Michael Moorcock took up his editorship, was devoted in essay after essay into Tolkien bashing. Yeah. Uh, China okay. Mabel wrote about Tolkien as the when on the arts of fantasy literature. Mm-hmm. So you get all of these urban fantasists do feel the need to define themselves against Tolkien. 
Mm. With the one exception of Neil Gaiman, who's the odd one out, who has been explicitly that he thinks The Lord of the Rings was the best book that could ever be written. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's it's funny. I I didn't, for some reason I didn't think of so Tolkien was born before World War Two, but I hadn't really it it didn't register, you know, that he is a post World War Two fantasy writer. I don't know why my brain was doing that, but but it also feels like I had never known that people bash Tolkien in that way. So that's that's pretty interesting. Thank you. Um, I, I'm glad to hear that. I, I hope it's interesting. Um, it, it's sort of striking to see. It's almost like they don't protest too much mm. because you, you get the sense that they're so fiercely um, involved in trying to tear him apart that in some way they're acknowledging the fact that actually he's a lasting influence on them as well. Mm -hmm. So would you say that, he, and even though you focus on the urban um, and Tolkien, you classify as the rural, you know, standing for the rural tradition, um, did he, was he pining? Did he seem to pine for an old... Britain or London, I guess his writing suggests that, but, but was he openly, did he openly state that in letters or commentaries? So I'm not a Tolkien expert. Okay. I don't want to claim that for myself. I haven't read that many Tolkien letters outside of, of trying to figure out where Tolkien stood um, in this configuration. But mm. I think if we read The Lord of the Rings, there's absolutely a, a deep sense of nostalgia towards a pre-industrial, medieval, pastoral, idealized, uh, medieval, middle-aged England. I mean, it's definitely there. In one of his most famous essays, um, which every Tolkien fan, every Tolkien scholar knows by heart, it's entitled On Fairy Stories, and it was published in, it was first delivered as a lecture and then published in 1947. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the fact that we should not be ashamed of escapism and fantasy. We should not be ashamed of archaism that there's something very healthy about wanting to turn back the clock and to look for the nobility of castles and arrows and horses rather than the ugliness of industrial life. So this is definitely something that Tolkien said very clearly in his writings, if it's whether it's in the explicitly in on fairy stories or allegorically in The Lord of the Rings. Even though he hated the word allegory, I think that sort of allegory still comes through quite clearly. Mm-hmm. So, so talking about the modern urban writers, I, I, so I feel like their, their portrayals, their fantasies were sort of, uh, not positive about the urban setting themselves. You know, I think they had a lot to, to, um, to complain about or, or to not, I don't want to say complain, but things, you know, politically and, and the status of people in cities and, and that sort of thing. And I'm th thinking China Miaville. Um, you know, his stuff is very political. So, so tell me about their approach to the urban. That's a wonderful question. Um, I think, yes, they absolutely complain and critique it, critique, yeah. but they also never assume that we could live anywhere else. I mean, especially China Mabel, if you think, I think one of the, the greatest urban fantasies to be written in, in the last 20 years is Pretty to Street Station, which is also his second book. Um, and it's about a sort of a city that's a version of London, uh, a version of Victorian London specifically named New Crobazon. And it's corrupt and it's cruel and it's oppressive, but it's also wonderful. It's, it's also it's also the world. Everything is there. It has this amazing train station and it has this mix of cultures and foods and politics and society. 
So it, it's never about running away from the city or in, in that sense, it's never about trying to return to some sort of urban pastoral or Arcadian life. It's about trying to make the city better by critiquing it. And that, I think, is, is quite crucial and a crucial difference uh, that makes him very distinctive and very different from, say, Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so what other uh, themes, either major or minor themes, do you touch on in the book that we might not have uh, touched on yet? That's a really good question. I think a lot of one of the main themes that I talk about is the issue of seeing London differently, mm-hmm. of, of conceiving of it fantastically. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, yeah. is something that really Dickens again bequeathed to the London fantastic. Because uh, if you think even back to Christmas Carol at the very end, we know that Scrooge is redeemed because he walks the streets of London and he sees London differently. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, he sort of edges his way along the crowded paths of life, we're told, mm-hmm. which really reads as he edged his way on the pavements of London. And, and now he's walking and he's looking at the beggars and he's looking, he's almost voyeuristic. He's looking into the windows of people's mm-hmm. houses and into the churches and he's laughing. And more than that, he's causing other people to look at him differently. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's about seeing London in a new way. And for Dickens, that goes back to a very young age. I'm sure, I mean, everyone knows this uh, because it's such a famous thing about Dickens. When he was 12 years old, he was sent to work at a blacking factory. It was called Warren's Blacking. He had a traumatic year where he had to really do this really grinding labor for a year. Mm -hmm. And apologies if this is obvious, but the reason I'm mentioning it is because during that time, he had to sort of live almost on his own in London. Mm -hmm. He walked the streets on his own and he was a really young 12 year old boy. And one of um, his memories that he later wrote about in, in an autobiographical fragment is sitting in a cafe with the sign coffee room on the door and looking outward out of the cafe into the street of London and suddenly seeing that sign in reverse because the sign was turned outward towards the street. Mm-hmm. So while the sign said coffee room, he read that sign more effort as in coffee room reversed mm, yeah. and and that moment of suddenly seeing the everyday yeah. london that you know that coffee room that cafe that he walked into every day in a new way he said that that was really a profound moment for him and i think that sort of this notion of more epic fantasy which by the way is not my phrase it's tolkien's phrase that's how tolkien defined dickens's fantasy mm-hmm. That idea is something that you really see throughout these books. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Dickens talked about giving an odd unlikeness to London, sort of unsettling London from its own likeness. Mm-hmm. Wells talked about uh, giving the world a new aspect. And when Wells talked about the world, he often meant London. And you get this again and again. Uh, uh, definitely Michael Moorcock and Anton Harrison talked about a fresh vision and a new sensibility that was very, very deeply urban. Mm. It's it's about defamiliarizing the city and getting a fresh view on it, a fantastical view that can then make the city better by Mm. understanding it in a different way. And it seems it's more than just looking at the city physical construct of the city, but also the people that inhabit it. You know, that they're obviously... a piece, a separate piece, but a but a, a part of the total piece. Did, yes, absolutely. Sorry. Oh, did they approach? Did they 
did they sort of divide it in that way, you know, like try to separate the people from the architecture in any way in these writings? I, I think you're absolutely right. And yes, I, I think, um, as you say, there's human architecture and there's physical mm. architecture and they often meld into each other. Mm. So, I mean, again, Christmas Carol, it's absolutely about Scrooge's relationship both to the public space of London and to his fellow Londoners. Mm -hmm. Uh, in The War of the Worlds, it's very much about looking at how everyday Londoners respond to a total crisis. I mean, this is a book about how um, the people promenading on Regent's Park are suddenly attacked by these horrible tentacled aliens and how they respond to that. And the answer is not very well, but it, it's still a study of, of human urban behavior. Of course, George Orwell's 1984. And one of the, I think, really touching things about post-war London fantasies is how they're about um, the beauty and futility of acts of kindness. Hmm. So in, in 1984, you have this, I think one of the most powerful moments in the book is when Winston is sitting in the um, a sort of waiting room, ironically, of the Ministry of Love, hmm. which of course is uh, the, the torture room. Is yeah. The entire building is devoted to torture. And there's, there are two other inmates. One of them is a chinless man, by which I, the description means someone who's quite large, and a um, skull-faced man, someone who's dying of starvation. And the chinless man realizes that his inmate is, is starving and he tries to give him food. And the result is, is terrible. I mean, it, it ends very badly for everyone. The thought police break into the room. They, they, there's this really horrible scene of violence where they beat up the uh, chinless man and the skull-faced man starts begging them to take the chinless man to room 101 instead of him. It's, it's awful. But it's also a moment where you suddenly realize that as futile and terrible as, as, as the situation is, there's, there's are still people who will try to be decent and to act kindly, mm. even if it ends terribly for everyone involved. And I, you get that also in the fantasies of Mervyn Peak. Mm. These moments of random acts of kindness that are the, the, the main way that you can still incubate some sort of redemption in London. Mm. Um. So I mentioned the architecture part because I think, I don't know if I saw it in this book blurb or maybe your other work about a focus on the architecture of, um, of the city, the fantastic, you know, how, how the normal, well, I'm assuming that the idea is that the normal can become the fantastic, um, in a way, in, in the way that you look at, at what you're seeing within London. So interestingly, I think you may be referring to an article that I wrote a while back while I was doing my PhD. Yeah. Um, but, and that's absolutely true. I mean, one of the sort of main distinctive features of London-based fantasy is the way that the everyday uh, realistic landmark or routine is merged and sometimes modulated into the fantastical. So I think one of the ways that you can really distinguish real London, well, real, Real is maybe not the right word, but there are different degrees of London-based fantasy. And I think one of the ways that you can really read, a, I think in many ways, a proper London-based fantasy is its knowledge of London, is its evocation of streets, of real streets, real buildings, real institutions, and real markets. Mm -hmm. So, uh, again, to, to go to Christmas Carol, you may notice that it begins in the Royal Exchange, in the city of London, the capital C. It's, I, I can take, and I do, I take my students to actually see these buildings and these streets. They're still there. Mm -hmm. And it's on Cornhill Street. Everything is very meticulously charted. 
And I think that's a very important feature of London-based fantasy, this ability to insert the fantastic and integrate it with the everyday, real, specific, and meticulously charted city. Mm. And that definitely includes buildings and landmarks and streets and getting it right. Which is why if you have a book, you can really tell when you have a book that's supposed to be set in London, but where the author either didn't do his homework or didn't really care that much for London. If you look at The Magician's Nephew, for example, you never get a single name of, of, of where even Diggory or Polly live, because that's it's not really a London-based fantasy. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you look at something like Edith Nesbitt's uh, The Story of the Amulet, you know exactly where these children live, what's around them, how where they go every day, how they feed the ducks in St. James's Park. Hmm. And uh, maybe this is... This is- probably outside the scope of your book, but um, f- er, um, fantasy within London was, did earlier uh, uh, fantasy authors before 1840, ha- have have they used London in this way, or, or was this sort of a new approach to fantasy and the city? So, I, w- I mean, that's, that's a really good question, and I, I would argue that uh, sort of fully, fle- really sort of co- London-based fantasy proper coalesced in the 1840s with Dickens' Christmas books. But that said, there are definitely antecedents, and it's definitely always messier and more complicated than that. So, I mean, certainly Mary Shelley's The Last Man, you have key scenes that take place in London. Uh, John Polidori's Vampire, some of it is set in London. William Blake, Charles Lamb, Percy Shelley, all of them wrote about London in ways that you could construe as fantastical. But sort of a proper treatment of London as a character in its own right within a story, a sustained story of fantasy, that I would say begins with Christmas Carol. Hmm. And um, again, a, a little bit outside the scope of your book, but uh, urban fantasy using a city in this way, was London sort of the first city used in this way or were there other in the past before 1840? Were other cities used in this way, do you know of? I mean, you do have sort of ancient cities, of course, and it depends on how you would define mythology. Hmm. Or you can think about, say, the Arabian Nights. But I think, by and large, really sort of what we would think of as fantasy today, as, as prose fantasy, really began in the 19th century. I mean, if you think of, say, the grim fairy tales or Arthurian romance hmm. or the Arabian Nights, usually sustained scenes of supernatural occurrences would be outside of what we think of as cities. It's usually in sort of marginalized spaces of society. Mm-hmm. So in the thick of a forest or in a, in a lost hidden cave or in, a, in an island far, far away, you would not normally have a, a scene of genies and supernatural and, and magic lanterns at the thick and the heart of the crowd in a market on a city before the 19th century. Hmm, okay. And, okay, so you just talked about magical occurrences, but how about the idea of, and maybe you just answered this, but how about the city itself having magical spots? You know, like like you just referred to, you know, a rural setting, you can have the magical, you know, thicket or clearing where that has, you know, fairies or whomever, who have imbued it with a magical quality, at what point do you see London not just being a setting, but having a magical spot based on, you know, that it's been infused with magic somehow? 
that's really interesting. So I think part of what London fantasy does, in fact, is to make a claim for the city, hmm. or at least at the beginning. Because I think what it wants to do, in a sense, is also create a more democratic vision of fantasy, if that makes sense. Hmm. So l- let's think, I mean, the ghost of Marley. Mm-hmm. Uh, he manifests in a door knocker, and what Dickens specifically describes as a lowering pile of building up a yard, I mean, basically a junk pile, <laughs> which is Scrooge's house. Mm-hmm. So laying aside the fact that it's interesting that someone as wealthy and Scrooge lives in, as Scrooge lives in such a dump, I think it's, it's also this, a kind of deliberate um, democratization and almost understated locale to this fantasy because basically what this tradition seems to me to be saying is fantasy can inherit anywhere, even in the dreariest nook in the worst part of the city, mm-hmm. as long as you know how to look for it and now, as long as you know how to look at it. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, I think these authors actually made a sustained effort to try and, and democratize fantasy. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly true that you have someone like G.K. Chesterton who really focuses on an area like Notting Hill. And you also get Michael Moorcock later focusing on Notting Hill and on West London. Mm-hmm. And H.G. Wells generally focused a bit more, I think, on North London, I would say Regent's Park, maybe Hyde Park, But still, I think all of these authors make a sustained effort to suggest that fantasy inheres in the city, and it's more about uh, about seeing it properly, about developing the right vision and and the right openness to fantasy in order to experience it. Hmm. Okay, okay. I'm speaking with Dr. Hadass Elber Avaram, author of Fairy Tales of London. You can find more information about her work on her academic webpage. If you like this episode of Full Contact Nerd Interviews so far, please tap the like button and hit the subscribe button. If you want interviews with writers and creative people, or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyinspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So let me uh, turn to the resources you used for your research. Um, You've been looking into this topic for quite some time. So where, where do you go to study this? Just read the authors or what else is there? Uh, so I'm a, a huge fan of, of trying to read literature in its material and historical context. So mm-hmm. I really love trying to go as close to the source as possible. Mm-hmm. And I'm really lucky to be living in London. So I have the British Library, a 20 minute tube ride from where I live. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I would go, I mean, I'm, lived at the British Library for a while, more or less. <laughs> um, I, if you look in, in my, sort of, especially my Wells chapter, I go, so I try to use the original serialization of the War of the Worlds in Pearson's magazine, the original serialization of the Time Machine in the New Review. I, and more than that, I was very fortunate that um, my home institution, the University of Notre Dame's London Global Gateway, uh, gave me a scholarship to pay a research visit 
to the H.G. Wells papers in the University of Urbana, Illinois, Champaign. Yeah. And they keep all of H.G. Wells' manuscripts. It's amazing. Hmm. It's basically the treasure trove. It's a, the Wellsian dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> and they're also super nice and super generous. Um, I should give another shout out to the imaging specialist, Dennis Sears, who spent untold hours scanning Wells' manuscripts for me. Hmm. And I really used that, those a lot. There were six different Wells manuscripts for his short story, The Door in the Wall. There's the entire manuscript for another London-based story, A Story of the Days to Come. It's an amazing place. I mean, you can, I, I know people spent a year there just looking at the Wells manuscripts. Hmm. So that was really important to me. Uh, the Mervyn Peak Archive at the British Library, much closer to home, hmm. has all of, of Mervyn Peak's notebooks, which is incredible. Again, it's, I mean, I, I think I warmly recommend, um, where possible, looking at the original. Mm-hmm. Because even if it's been published elsewhere, there is a value to that experience of seeing what it looked like originally. What oh. Wells' readers would have seen when they opened up Pearson's magazine and read the latest installment of The War of the Worlds. And I think that's important. Mm-hmm. And also, of just seeing the development of, of the author, it's, it's, I think it's, uh, for me especially, because the manuscripts of The Door in the Wall contained... Uh, sort of greater detailed references to the London locations in the story than those that were published. So for me, this was really valuable information. Mm-hmm. So man- definitely manuscripts where possible are amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the other thing I really used is a lot of, of sort of uh, reference works about London. So I even have it here, Jerry White's London in the 19th century, yeah. amazing reference book. He also wrote London in the 20th century, the London Encyclopedia, all of these are really valuable resources. Huh, interesting. Um, it's interesting that point you made about seeing sort of the physical, you know, the the book or magazine, like the physical qualities of itself and how it can um, impact the imagination of the reader. Um, and maybe not consciously, you know, maybe, maybe modern readers looking back at what is antique, you know, sort of imbues it with even more fantastic uh, feeling. You know, is is the idea I get when you talk about opening up the old, the old uh, periodicals. Yes, absolutely, and I think also you get a sense of a bit more of the author's intention, even because let's think about a New World's magazine. So it's mm-hmm. not even that old; it's 1960s. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the stories in New Worlds, the London-based stories, even of Jerry Cornelius have a lot of um, satire about advertising. And so they have, they insert all sorts of advertisements and brochures, and there's a lot of sort of eclectic material within them. And you get a completely different experience of that if you open it in the magazine and you see that interspersed in those stories are actual real advertisements in addition to the spoof advertisements. So it gives you a, a much greater feel of, of what this author was trying to do with that and how it was also commenting on its own format, which you would never get if you just open the book and read it. So th- that's, I think, one, one point to make. Another point to make is that we, I think we sometimes lose some of the context of how modern something is for the writer. So, for example, I teach The War of the Worlds mm-hmm. uh, in my course on London, fantastical London literature, and there's a moment in The War of the Worlds where Tower Bridge tries to open and gets stuck. Now, we, we would read that, and that wouldn't, I mean, we would just pass that by. But it's worth remembering that Tower Bridge was very, very new 
when H.G. Wells was writing The War of the Worlds. So what he's actually commenting on is the failure for technology to, to fulfill its function if people are essentially too stupid to use it properly. So when people become hysterical, technology will also fail. And that's a point that he could make very easily to his readers by evoking this new hydraulic technology of the wonderful new Tower Bridge. But that would completely pass us by because for us, Tower Bridge is you know, just a 100 and plus year old bridge. Right. So it's worth also remembering historical context in that sense. Have you ever tried, have you taken a, a work that refers to a specific location and, and read the work near the location to sort of experience it as it's described? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm incredibly fortunate that I live in London. So throughout writing this book, I've walked to all of these locations. Uh, for Jerry Cornelius, I went to Ludwig Grove, and he talks about a Derry and Tom's roof garden. So I went there. Of course, I read War of the Worlds by Tower Bridge and around Regent's Park. And it does, it, it does make a difference. Sensing that location, I think, really gives you a, a deeper feel for the scene and the style in which it's described and what the author intended on a deeper level. How about um, these urban fantasies as a, a sort of tour guide of a city? Did the authors ever self-consciously or mention that they wanted to give people a feel for the city, not just use it as a setting because they were familiar with it, but to let other readers know about their city or the city? I I think uh, Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere definitely does that, and self-consciously so. Mm. And one of the interesting things about Neil Gaiman is, of course, that he wrote a lot of Neverwhere, a lot of the editions, as well as conceiving of it and writing the, many of the episodes while he was in the United States. So he had a, a great feel of trying to convey London to people from the outside. And I think he used that to great advantage. So that is, it's definitely something that you feel in Neverwhere, a sense of trying to impart some of the wonder of London and some of the feel and locale of London to people who were not Londoners. Mm -hmm. So what part of the research was most enjoyable? I'm sure you enjoyed most of it, um, but what stood out as the best part? Um, wow, I, I did. I really did enjoy a lot of it. Um, definitely walking London and sort of using these books as my own tour guide. That was fantastic. Mm -hmm. I, I love walking. I think, I mean, it, it's one of the great, one of the great pleasures of my life is just walking and reading at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and the manuscripts. I'm deciphering handwriting is such hard work. It's a bit like having a 1000 piece puzzle mm -hmm. and trying to figure it out. So a lot of it is really agonizing. And then when you finally get it, it's, it's like solving a riddle. Yeah. Nice. So how about, you know, London has various um, climates and, you know, sometimes it's rainy, sometimes sunny. Is there any, um, did you ever try to experience any of the writing in the appropriate uh, climate, so to speak? <laughs> well, I mean, London's climate is generally a cloudy and rainy. <laughs> so, I mean... <laughs> It may change with climate change, of course, but at the moment, the, these writers wrote about London as uh, as overcast and rainy, and London has been overcast and rainy, so it's, there's been no disjunction there whatsoever. <laughs> okay. Um, what did you come across that most surprised you in your research over time for this? Hmm. Um, I think probably what was surprised me uh, more than anything is the fact that no one has written this book before. Hmm. 
I mean, I've been immersed in London-based fantasy for so long that it, it was obvious to me that someone must have already done this. And I, I was astonished to discover that there has been no book-length study of London-based fantasy before this one. I, I'm very proud to be the first. Hmm. Uh, I'm sure that someone else will write another book and try to debunk everything that I said. That's the natural <laughs> way of things. Yeah. And that's also a compliment in its own way. Mm-hmm. So was there a, a question that you really wanted to get an answer for and either finally you felt comfortable with what you came came to or or maybe you're still grappling you'd re- something you'd really like to figure out um, I think the, the real difficulty uh, as I said is just deciding who to include and I know and that's fine that some readers will be disappointed not to find their favorite authors there or authors that they think should be there and are not. Mm-hmm. And um, I've, I've worked I, very hard and quite strenuously to try to defend my choice of authors, mm-hmm. but I'm sure that not everyone will be satisfied with it. Mm-hmm. And there are authors that I'm sorry I couldn't include. I, I'm sorry I couldn't include G.K. Chesterton more. Uh, I'm sorry I couldn't include Charles Williams more. I mean, between us, uh, the, the first draft that I sent to Bloomsbury was 40,000 words too long. Uh. Um, and they, they were really lovely about it, but they said, listen, we cannot publish a 140,000 book. Please cut it down to size. So I really did need to cut out a lot. And, um, and I am, uh, you know, acutely aware that this is a line of white male authors. Hmm. And I would have liked it to be more diverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, for my, my next monograph, I am planning to focus on women, mm-hmm. on London fantasists who are women. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not there in this book. And I, I am aware of that. Okay. Was there any author that you thought would um, be more prominent in the book or included in the book that after you researched them, you you realized, hmm, maybe they don't, they don't carry the weight I thought they might for this subject? You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because I haven't thought about it in years, but definitely J.G. Ballard. Hmm. Uh, so uh, at the time, I mean, when I was... Uh, in the second year of my PhD, J.G. Bullard was all the rage, mm-hmm. um, and everyone told me that I should write about him, and I read so much. Um, I have to admit, I'm not a fan. I think he's a little bit overrated. Uh, I know some people will be very angry with me for saying that, hey. um, but uh, I, I just don't think he's sort of as I don't think he carries he's he carries the same uh, powerful depictions of London that I have w- with the rest of the authors in my book. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I know this research isn't necessarily emotionally impactful in any, in a sense, but was there anything you came across that really struck you either positively or negatively, any aspect of this? I think working, yeah, definitely working on Mervyn Peake. Hmm. Uh, he's such a tragic figure and he's, I, I find him so moving. He's, I mean, he was, his success in the Gormenghast trilogy was really overshadowed by the Lord of the Rings. Um, he he was struck very young by Parkinson's disease, hmm. which um, destroyed his mind, destroyed his creativity, his ability to write, his ability to paint. Um, and his, his, he became, after the Second World War, he took upon himself to record the sufferings of people during the war. So he took this really grim journey across Europe and he, he wrote poetry and, and he painted a sort of really heartbreaking scenes from from Bergen-Belsen and concentration camps and you can really feel that sort of profound vulnerability and trauma in his writings and I always find him incredibly moving there's um yeah uh so I mean and also just 
the fact that he's not sort of as famous as the other writers somehow made it more personal for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, of, co- of course, you know, there's been there's been a, a recognition of, of Mervyn Peake in the UK. I think more in the UK than in the US. Mm-hmm. And and things have, and of course, uh, G. Peter Wington is, is the leading scholar about him. But by and large, if you tell someone J.R.R. Tolkien, they'll know exactly who you're talking about. Whereas if you tell them Mervyn Peake, you know, there's a 50-50 chance. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, trying to, to give more focus to Mervyn Peake, I, I felt was something that was really emotionally impactful for me. What what are um, his his big uh, his major writings? The uh, the Gormenghast trilogy. Yeah. So a uh, Titus Grown, mm-hmm. Gormenghast, and Titus alone, mm-hmm. um, which sort of beautifully chronicle essentially the fall of the House of Grown. Uh, they're not, except for the third book, they're not overtly fantastical. Mm-hmm. The third book is, which is why I focus on it, mm-hmm. and they're really sort of there's nothing like it. They're this beautiful ponderous style. And weird characters, and they're, they're really glorious. I warmly recommend them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've I've hadn't heard of of him up until maybe a year or so ago, and I started seeing him discussed more and more on like you know Facebook pages about horror and fantasy and that sort of thing. So I, I've I've seen his name pop up more and more often, and his works. So um, excellent. Yeah, yeah. So what do you hope? Obviously, you want to educate the readers about this topic, but what what else, what do you hope readers will take away after reading this? Um, hmm. Two things. I think, first of all, I would really love to, to help facilitate the study of fantasy and setting. I mean, there is a lot of work being done about this, but just generally to, to help raise awareness of how important setting, especially urban setting, especially London, is to fantasy and the fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hope also to, to reach readers who are not the, the sort of already captivated audience of students and scholars. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that I chose Bloomsbury rather than, say, Oxford University Press or Cambridge University Press, even though they're supposed to be the, the holy grail of academics, is that I really wanted to reach a non-specialist audience. And mm-hmm. Bloomsbury are really good at that. They really target sort of both audiences. Hmm. So I really hope that a science fiction or fantasy fan out there that's who's interested in sort of expanding into a more intellectual view of the genre may be interested in reading the book and hopefully enjoy it. Mm-hmm. When did the, um, you know, urban fantasy is a thing, you know, when you look at how books are sold, you know, urban fantasy is a subcategory of fantasy. When did, do you know when it developed as a thing as opposed to just, you know, being part of fantasy without being specified as urban fantasy? So, unfortunately, that label has lost a lot of its value lately because um, it's become a kind of lewd catch-all for um, books about teenage girls falling in love with werewolves and that sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) So, I'm not sure it's actually done that much of a service to the the actual uh, area of study. Um, I think it became more prominent certainly after Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere, which was a smashing success. Mm-hmm. Uh, but lately, because sort of vampire teenage fiction has become so uh, prolific and has also for some reason been categorized as urban fantasy, it, it's been tricky actually to try and define the genre more precisely. Hmm. And I noticed again in your bio that uh, you've written a fair amount on vampires as well, right? Studied. <laughs> Vampire fiction, yeah. not actual vampires. 
Um, I, it's yeah, I, that's just a really fun subject. Um, I try to write about sort of more Octavia Butler's vampires and less sort of teenage vampires, but I mean, it's certainly a really interesting subject. Mm-hmm. It's just I, I do feel I'm a bit unsettled when someone talks about, say, a story that's in. Um, I don't know, a really small town and also says that it's urban fantasy uh, mm. because it's in that genre. So I do think it's, it's worthwhile to define your terms more precisely in that sense in order to get anything meaningful out of it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting thinking of Bram Stoker's Dracula going from the the rural Transylvania castle and transported to the the city of London. Um, it, that That's, yeah, that, that happens, right? In the book, I forget the time, yeah. So it's kind of interesting, you know, that transcend or that movement um, within that novel. Oh, yes. It's fascinating. It's also, of course, a journey from the unruly space of the East into the heart of civilization in the West, that is London. Mm -hmm. And he he deliberately goes into London and uh, puts all sorts of of boxes in London in order to get a foothold in London. It's, It's really an invasion fantasy in many ways. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could just keep asking questions about that sort of stuff, but, (laughs) um, actually now that you mention it, 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 is there, so when you say invasion fantasy, can you think of, are there other fantasy works that are like that where the city is, well, you have HG Wells, you know, war of the worlds, but, uh, any others where the city is, is invaded I mean, certainly John Wyndham's The Day of the Triffids is the next one that definitely comes to mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot, there's a whole subgenre that's been, Brian Aldous has called it the cozy catastrophe genre, mm-hmm. where essentially London is invaded and destroyed by some sort of supernatural force, whether it's plants or Martians or a vampire. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the hero actually has a really jolly good time and gets the girl and, and gets the best car and has fun. Uh, now, that's more uh, Day of the Triffids. That's not really the War of the Worlds, um, and it's not really Dracula, but there are certainly a, a lot of um, of narratives of that pattern where you get some sort of outside supernatural force that is uh, interestingly focused on London and generally destroys it in all sorts of spectacular ways, absolutely. Huh. Actually, are you familiar with the work? This is one of my favorite works that I've read recently. The, what is it? The Midwich Cuckoos? It's. Are you familiar with that that novel? <laughs> I and, do. I th- I think it's lovely. I mean, I haven't read it in a long time, so I don't feel sort of qualified to comment on it. But yeah. it's it's yeah, it's definitely in, in that in that sort of thing, absolutely. And the reason it pops to mind is you know you you talk about invasion fantasy, but that this is more the interesting thing there is it's an invasion in in a rural, you know, in in, a, in an area separated from the city. But the city is sort of trying to understand what's going on and, and doing its part kind of in a failing manner. Like the city isn't fully aware of the danger that exists in the countryside, you know, that's going on around them. Um, hmm. That's yeah. a really good way of putting it. I think that that's exactly right. And it may be sort of the difference a little between, say, China, someone like China Mabel and someone like Stephen King. Mm-hmm whether the horror comes from the fact that you live in this tightly knit community yeah. and people are, are sort of subtly changing. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it? Invasion of the body snatchers type of thing. Yeah. Uh, versus 
being in a city where you're surrounded by strangers, mm-hmm. um, but then you fa- but and then something invades you either from within and without, and you fail to sort of coalesce and and, and organize a, a proper response to it, and so it destroys, creates swaths of people anonymously and without mm-hmm. even a, a proper sort of sp- a, a proper send off and just. Mm-hmm. Spect- spectacular destruction, and I think that's that's a really good way of, of distinguishing between the two. Absolutely. Hmm. Interesting. Um, did you have any? Well, you mentioned some of having to cut back what uh, you submitted, but did you have any other difficulties getting the book finished or published? Actually, I was really lucky. Um, I, I I think Blooms. Yes, Bloomsbury were the only publisher that I approached, and I knew I wanted to publish with them because. They are the publishers of books about London, and as I said, they're also really good at, at sort of targeting a mixed audience, which I really wanted. Mm-hmm. And they were absolutely lovely from the beginning. I mean, a shout out to, to Ben Doyle and to Lucy Brown and David Vital, everyone who was involved. They've been professional, they were supportive, they were enthusiastic from the beginning. I was so relieved because I kept hearing horror stories about how, how difficult the process is, and I was really mm-hmm. very, very lucky. Um, Bloomsbury are brilliant. I mean, if, if there's anyone out there listening who wants to publish a monograph, I really recommend them. Hmm, okay. Was there, since you mentioned that you had heard horror stories, was there, do you have any tips as far as um, how to make it easier for people? Like, did you recognize an obstacle that uh, that you were able to, to work around just because you were aware of how to best deal with it? I mean, what I would say is it's definitely worth researching your publisher before you submit to them mm-hmm. and trying to see whether they have um, sub-series that are relevant to your particular monograph. Mm-hmm. So for me, there was a sub-series entitled Bloomsbury Studies in the City, mm-hmm. which funnily enough ceased publication exactly when I submitted my monograph yeah. uh, because I, submitted, I, I meant to submit to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but notwithstanding, they were still really enthusiastic about it and I think the fact that I knew that there was that series and that they knew that I was targeting it really helped. So I would recommend not just automatically sending, say, your monograph to Oxford University Press because, you know, it's very prestigious, but to looking at the sub-series and seeing, does Oxford University Press have a specific series that would fit really well with my monograph, Edinburgh University Press, because often, I mean, that that's a really good way to smooth the process of publication. Hmm. Okay, okay. Um, do you have a, a current book writing project that you're working on? So I, I really want to compensate for the fact that um, I've written about a male line of authors by writing about women oh. fantasists of London. So, so that's the, my next big thing. I want to write about a line running from Mary Shelley to Edith Nesbitt to Maggie G to Emma Tennant, uh, up to J.K. Rowling, ideally, mm-hmm. and really focus on how women have envisioned London fantastically. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Um, so do you have a website or social media where people can follow your thoughts or updates on your works? Um, so if I, probably the easiest way to contact me is through my faculty webpage Mm -hmm. on the website of the University of Notre Dame's London Global Gateway. Mm -hmm. Um, that's also where you have my official email for correspondence. Mm -hmm. If you want to sort of chat informally, you can always find me on Facebook if you prefer. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'll spell your name for listeners and viewers. It's um, H-A-D-A-S is your first name and last name E-L-B-E-R-A-V-I-R-A-M. Is that correct? That's perfect. Yeah, yeah. 
Thank you. Um, so that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Um, just thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been a sheer pleasure. Oh, yeah. It's been really interesting, really interesting stuff that we've talked about. I appreciate it. In the next episode, I speak with Juliet Wade about her new science fiction novel, Transgressions of Power. Hit the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want more interviews with writers and creative people, or to get daily fiction suggestions including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, and Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and this podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon. Keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.